I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. We are here every week, and this is where we study what's happened in the past in order to help determine what might happen in the future and how it might affect you and your money. I've got what I believe is an especially timely program for you this week. Joining me in segments two and three of today's program is Mr. Alistair McLeod. Alistair is the head of research at Gold Money. I caught up with Alistair this past week uh, from his offices in the UK and got his take on what's going on with metals prices currently. And if you've been paying attention to the prices of gold and silver, and to a lesser extent, maybe platinum and palladium, you know that we've seen a huge breakout to the upside in prices over the past couple weeks. Now, I believe this move, which I have long forecasted, is largely related to the extremely easy monetary policies currently being pursued by the Fed. In fact, when you study history and you look at other times in the past when money has been created or printed indiscriminately, and I think that probably describes the current situation, you find that tangible assets are a good thing to have in your portfolio. And this is where I think those planning for retirement, those managing their 401k, those managing their IRAs using traditional methods uh, are about to be let down. We are in, without a doubt, uncharted territory, economically speaking. Uh, when it comes to financial markets, we're seeing artificial markets like we've never seen before in U.S. history. And that simply means that in a non-traditional environment, in, a, in an environment where we are in uncharted territory, you cannot do things the way that you've always done them. Now, if you've been a long-time listener to the program, you know that I have long been forecasting that we would get a breakout in the price of metals, and I will go on record as saying today that I believe we're just getting started, although it's important to remember that markets typically don't go straight up or straight down. So I think we will see a pullback in price when it comes to metals. But long term, I expect higher nominal gold and silver prices. In fact, I think we go much higher from here. And there's one reason that I think that. There is seemingly no end or limit to the amount of money that may be created. You know, and we've had some very bright guests here on the program over the past several years. And among these guests, there is a great deal of debate as to whether we see a deflationary outcome of the current economic situation or if, on the other hand, we see an inflationary outcome. So I wanted to go back in history. I want to go back in history about 160 years to give you an example and I think the example that I'm about to share with you may shed some light on where we go from here. Now, let's start with the fact that when debts go unpaid and defaults on debt occur, money disappears from the financial system, and this is deflationary. On the other hand, money printing is inflationary. And the Federal Reserve has expanded their balance sheet 
which means they've printed money, to the tune of more than $3 trillion already this year. That's inflationary. So what will the ultimate outcome be? Well, that brings me to the example that I want to share with you in this segment. See, at the time of the Civil War, President Lincoln and Congress changed the banking laws to allow the U.S. dollar to be backed by gold, silver, and government debt. So money creation occurred to fund the Civil War, but gold was never completely abandoned. In fact, there were certain items like certain tariffs that you had to have gold in order to pay. So why did this change occur? Well, the reason is simple. There wasn't enough gold and silver money in existence in existence rather to fully fund the war, so they changed the banking rules. They said, let's back the dollar by not only gold and silver, but by U.S. government debt. Now, whenever money is printed, we have inflation. And as I led with in this segment, gold prices typically track the real inflation rate. Well, it's interesting that back about this time, gold priced in dollars, in union dollars, moved from $20 an ounce to $50 an ounce. And then after the long depression of 1873 saw a deflationary collapse, the country went back on the gold standard and the gold price was once again set to $20 an ounce. Now on the other side of the war, the Confederacy created their own currency in 1861. That currency was called the Confederate dollar. Now, the Confederate dollar was a total fiat currency, which simply means it wasn't backed by gold, it wasn't backed by silver, it was backed by the taxing authority of the government. It was currency by fiat, by government decree. Now, when the Confederate dollar was created in 1861, it was on par with the Union's gold dollar. So a $1 Confederate note was equal to a $1 gold-backed dollar. Now, one year later... It took $1.25 in Confederate money to equal a dollar in Union money. So that's a 25% inflation rate in just one year. Now, the month before the Confederate note was rendered worthless, the exchange rate went from $100 to a dollar to $1,200 to a dollar. That's an inflation rate of 120% in just one month. That inflation rate was enough to make consumers abandon the use of the currency. Now, more precisely, it's because consumers lose faith in the currency and use the currency to buy anything tangible, which drives up prices even faster. It's this inflation rate, which in and of itself is the end of the currency. So essentially, this level of inflation is driven by fear. Consumers had two choices. They could hang on to the currency or they could exchange the currency for a tangible good that might hold its value much better, even if they had to pay a significant premium for that tangible asset. Now, this is the driving force behind nearly every hyperinflation. The Confederate dollar, like every fiat currency does, eventually fails. The Union, on the other hand, on the other side of the war, did print money, but they never completely abandoned gold. 
And here's my very important point. In order for a massively inflationary environment to exist, in order for a hyperinflationary climate to exist, exist rather, there needs to be two elements. One, the currency needs to be entirely fiat. And two, money printing has to be massive. And that massive printing of money is something that cannot occur on a gold exchange standard. Now, in the book, New Retirement Rules, which was published five years ago, I forecast that we would be where we are today. In fact, if you'd like to get a copy of the New Retirement Rules book, it's probably more relevant today than when it was published. You can go to mynewretirementrulesbook.com and request your copy, and we'll be glad to send you your complimentary copy of the book. Again, the website is mynewretirementrulesbook.com. Now, when you go back and look at these two conditions that need to exist for a hyperinflation, it's easy to see that they exist today. One, every currency in the world is a fiat currency. That's condition one. The second condition that needs to exist for a potential hyperinflation to occur is that massive levels of money printing need to be occurring. That condition also exists. That's why it was easy to forecast this breakout in metals, and that's why I'll go on record as saying that metals will go much higher over the next several years. Now, again, if you'd like to learn some strategies to potentially protect yourself, get a copy of the New Retirement Rules book. It was a bestseller when it was published. Go to mynewretirementrulesbook.com. That's mynewretirementrulesbook.com. I'll be back with Alistair McLeod. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I have the pleasure of speaking once again today with Mr. Alistair McLeod. Uh, Alistair is the head of research at Gold Money, and uh, I've spoken with Alistair several times here over the past year and a half or so, and given where things are headed economically, uh, Alistair, I'm going to say that uh, everything we've talked about up to this point, you've been a profit. Uh, it seems like everything is uh, that you predicted is is playing out. So given the current price in metals, the spike we're seeing in silver and in gold prices, uh, what do you what do you what do you make of it? What's going on? Well, um, um, hello, Dennis. It's nice to talk to you again. Uh, it is fascinating. Um, I think you will probably recall at the very end of February. Uh, the price of gold was smashed down, and uh, the objective was to get uh, the level of open interest on COMEX did down, which it did very successfully. It fell from just under 800,000 contracts, which was an extraordinary level never seen before, down to about 470,000 contracts, which was sort of towards the lower end, if you like, of um, uh, that number. Uh, but meanwhile, the price then uh, failed to go down with it, um, and uh, it recovered uh, during that operation uh, from a low of about 1475 up to uh, around about 1600, 1650. Um, and uh, by the time uh, they managed to get the open interest down to uh, below 500,000 contracts, we were looking at a price of over $1,700. So uh, they ended up actually... Um, managing to reduce the, out, the outstanding interest, but um, they forced themselves into an enormous bear squeeze. And we've still got the situation uh, working like that in gold. Um, I mean, the, the, the problem, uh, if you look at the commitment of traders' figures, 
is that um, instead of uh, the producers uh, having um, a fair uh, uh, quantity of the shorts, it was really all on the back of the bullion banks, and they couldn't claw their position back. And uh, so the squeeze has been on the bullion banks. I think another feature of it is that the uh, the chief executives of uh, banks which have a bullion trading desk um, have been turning around in many cases, certainly in the Europeans, and turning around and telling their traders, uh, look, you know, we want you to um, reduce your positions and look to, uh, we're looking to close down your desk. Um, because <clears throat> the, the um, uh, European banks and others um, are trying desperately to reduce their outstanding obligations. Um, we're at the end of the credit cycle. They're now getting absolutely terrified about lending money to anyone. Uh, yet the central banks are trying very hard to make them lend to, to people, which is something I covered in, a, in an article about the credit cycle uh, not so long ago. And um, consequently, um, these traders are bet between a rock and a hard place. They can't get their shorts back, uh, yet they're being told by their bosses they've got to reduce their positions. So you can see that um, that is, if you like, the sort of dynamic that's behind the run-up in gold, which um, in the last seven or eight trading sessions has run from 1800 up to, and I'm currently looking at $1,935. This is, um, this is on a Monday. Um, it is really a very, very difficult position for these traders. Silver is rather different. This is, silver is interesting because uh, the traders are just slightly short on silver and they're desperately trying not to get any more short because there's no physical around. Um, as you may imagine, um, sales of the SLV uh, silver ETF um, have taken off. Um, there isn't that much physical around uh, and nobody knows where to go for it. So they're, they're marking up the price of silver to avoid having to um, go short. And uh, that explains why it jumps on, you know, six or seven percent a day. And I, I mean, currently we're looking at twenty four dollars and twenty eight uh, cents. Um, that's up six point seven percent today. Uh, and uh, in the last one, two, three, four, five, six, seven trading sessions, it's come up from nineteen dollars. I mean, that's a, you know, that really is quite some move. You know, five and a quarter dollars on a nineteen dollar price. So, um, it's a, it, it, to sum it up, um, there's basically no capacity in the system to accommodate the buyers coming into the market. You know, Alice, this would be a good time to maybe just explain to the listeners what is it that gold money actually does. What services do they provide? Um, basically, what we do is we um, uh, look after our clients. Mm -hmm. um, uh, precious metals uh, on a custody basis. Um, uh, they're lodged in uh, LBMA um, uh, vaults or vaults, if you like, in uh, you know around the world, uh, which are operated by LBMA mem members. You know, people like Loomis and Brinks and so on and so forth. And I think we've got about 12 locations around the world. So, um, if you want to uh, have your gold stored in a different location from your government, then. <laughs> That is that that is certainly possible, but I think I think the um, the great thing about it is that it is outside the banking system. I mean, one of the problems I think with buying ETFs is you don't have delivery of the physical gold. The gold is stored within the banking system. Um, when things really go wrong in the banking system, you've got absolutely no certainty that uh, your entitlement to gold, which is all you get, a piece of paper, which is an entitlement to gold in the form of an ETF. 
um, uh, uh, well, actually, you don't even get that now. You know, it's all electronically uh, uh, logged. So um, we we provide, if you like, that sort of that, that situation where you have absolutely no counterparty risk, and um, uh, you know, even though you may store some of your wealth at home. Um, in many cases, it's not a secure thing to do, um, bar just a little, you know, bar just a bit of small change if everything goes wrong, as uh, it's looking increasingly likely, if everything goes wrong for fiat currencies, that is. So that's what we do. We provide um, a service, if you like, to uh, allow people to store their wealth in gold, silver, platinum group metals outside the banking system. And you can also have um, a debit card so that you can draw down on your uh, precious metals and um, uh, spend it in normal fiat, if you like, from time to time. Well, terrific. If you're just joining us, I'm chatting today with Mr. Alistair McLeod. He is the head of research at Gold Money. And Alistair, I read with uh, great interest uh, your article talking about, you know, the, I believe the title of the article was Explaining the Credit Cycle. And you have uh, said that banking failures are imminent, that we're nearing the end of the credit cycle. For our listeners maybe that aren't as financially savvy, uh, can you just explain exactly what is the end of the credit cycle and why are you forecasting these bank failures and, and when are we going to see them? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, if we go all the way back into the 19th century, um, I'm sure that most people have read of uh, you know, banking crises from time to time. Uh, they happen sort of quite regularly. And the reason it comes about is because banks uh, basically lend money into existence, and it allows them to lend more than their own capital out to um, whoever they want to lend it to. Uh, and this ends up with um, a multiple of the bank's own capital being lent out. Now, obviously, uh, if let us say you've got a, um, a, a margin of 2% interest and you can lend it out 10 times your capital, you're going to get 20% uh, margin on your underlying capital. So um, if a banker is greedy, he will go for a figure like 10, maybe 12 times uh, his capital in terms of uh, being lent out. If he is cautious, then what he does is he reduces the relationship between uh, the total balance sheet assets and uh, uh, his uh, equity, uh, the equity actually in the bank, uh, probably from that 8 to 12, maybe even slightly more if he's been very greedy. And he'll try and get it back to uh, well under 10, probably in the region of about five to eight times. Uh, and he will also uh, want to eliminate all the sort of risky lending that he might have engaged in before. So this creates a cycle of lending activity. Um, if we start from the, point of, from the point when we're just emerging from a slump, banks are very cautious. Uh, they're very careful who they lend to. They don't want to take on much risk. But then gradually things get better, and they get better because they do expand gradually the amount of money they lend. And if you create money and put it into an economy, obviously it makes things temporarily at least look better. So it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy as they increase the amount of lending into the economy. Uh, the economy begins to uh, recover as it takes up that money. And uh, inevitably, the bankers then think, well, things are looking a bit better. We can lend a bit more. So they lend a bit more. And then things even look a bit better uh, again. And they think, we need to compete for business here. Uh, so what they'll do is they'll cut their margins a bit. 
um, and try and attract more uh, lending business. Um, and as that process goes on, they find that quite rapidly uh, they're all getting up to that sort of, you know, 10 to 12 times um, their equity in terms of the total value of their balance sheet. And then inevitably, uh, the effect of the earlier lending begins to work its way through in terms of inflation, uh, pushing up prices of raw materials, uh, the cost of labor, all those things that uh, a manufacturer has to pay out suddenly become uh, scarce, if you like, uh, given the quantity of money. So um, at that stage, uh, all the bankers, and they're, 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 they're very much um, uh, you know, sort of a crowd psychology, just the same as anyone else, they begin to see the same things happening and they have the same worries and then they start reducing their lending. And as soon as they start doing that, businesses start going bust, markets implode and all the rest of it. So you can see that is the cycle of events. And we've observed it all the way back from uh, the middle of the 19th century. Central banks have tried to deal with this, believing not so much that it is a cycle of credit, but the problem is uh, business just gets overconfident or business starts making mistakes. And as far as central banks are concerned, that is the source of error. Uh, they're wrong. It's really the unintended consequences of credit bank credit expansion. So that is the cycle. And the reason this is important is that the moment that the central bank wants to stimulate the economy, as it were, uh, they find it difficult to do so because the banks which they rely on to pass on the stimulus of an increased balance sheet uh, are at that stage too cautious. They don't want to pass on, um, you know, they, they don't want to increase their commitments into the economy at all. And that roughly is where we are at the moment. So while the central banks are expanding their balance sheets as rapidly as they can, uh, the commercial banks are very, very cautious. And so the money isn't getting passed through to, uh, uh, if you like, non-financial business. Consequently, the money all ends up bottled within the financial economy, the financial system, and it ends up driving down yields on government bonds, which is, as far as the central bank is concerned, desired. It also uh, pushes up the uh, value of equities, irrespective of what's happening in the underlying economy, and that we're seeing. Um, and as far as the central bank is concerned, to a point that is good because it creates a wealth effect. But the problem is sooner or later, the whole thing starts falling over. Banks get into trouble uh, and uh, banks need rescuing. And the last time this happened was obviously the Lehman crisis. The time before that, we didn't actually have many banks going, going under. This was um, uh, back in 2002-03. But there was a point where there was a lot of concern, I can remember it well, about uh, the, the future uh, of the banking system. And uh, there have been, throughout history, there's been this cycle, if you like. It's a credit cycle that drives the business cycle. And every 10 or so years, the whole thing starts coming unstuck. So that basically is what I was describing in the article you referred to. Well, our guest today is Mr. Alistair McLeod. He is the head of research at Gold Money. You can learn more at goldmoney.com. Uh, you also can find Alistair's articles posted there. I would encourage you to check them out. I'll be back after these words to continue my conversation with Mr. Alistair McLeod. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm chatting today with Mr. Alistair McLeod. Alistair is the head of research at Gold Money. 
you can read his articles uh, at goldmoney.com. Uh, I try not to miss one. I would encourage you to do the same. And Alistair, you know, in the last segment, you gave us a terrific explanation of the credit cycle, explaining that at this point, we've got bankers becoming cautious. We're nearing the end of the credit cycle. And then on top of that, as we're nearing the end of the credit cycle, we have all these lockdowns worldwide that have really been devastating to the economy. So, um, to, to what extent uh, do, do you think that monetary policy, now all this money creation, is being driven by the end of the credit cycle versus the uh, the, the economic effects of the lockdowns? Uh, it's an interesting question because uh, the story that we're being told by the central banks is that they're rescuing the economy from uh, the lockdowns, the effect of the virus and all the rest of it, and we're going to have a V-shaped recovery um, and, uh, you know, some businesses will obviously fall by the wayside, but on the whole, we'll get back to normal fairly quickly. Um, now, that's the official story. But if you actually examine the situation, and you may recall back in September that there were already liquidity problems arising in the uh, U.S. money market, which um, meant that the Fed had to intervene. Uh, to drive back down the repo rate, which is the which basically is a, a liquidity mechanism, if you like, uh, back down to um, uh, the normal sort of Fed funds rate from 10%. Um, I think it was on. I think it was early September that that happened, and that was a real. That just came out of the blue. So there were liquidity problems arising then. Now, the origin of those liquidity problems, I think, are twofold. Firstly. Banks have got themselves extended, overextended in terms of their balance sheets, as I described earlier. And the second thing is that uh, America and China have been engaged in a, a tariff war, which um, uh, started undermining uh, international trade uh, in the very end of 2018. So we already had the um, uh, elements, if you like, of the, the credit cycle really turning which was very, very concerning. Now, on top of that, we then have COVID. So it's not just a question of COVID. It's also a question of the turn of the credit cycle, which was becoming obvious, but has been buried, if you like, by the later news from COVID. Now, I would also like to point out that the last time we had the coincidence of the end of the credit cycle and trade tariffs was in 1929, when uh, the market crashed, literally on the month that Congress passed the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act, which increased tariffs um, on imported goods into America uh, by a roughly 20% across the board. Now, this time it was only China, but um, China is the largest economy, second only to America. So we're talking about the, the behemoth, if you like, in economic terms, getting into a tariff war. So this is very serious. The comparison with 1929 does not augur well for how this is going to turn out or indeed how it is likely to turn out for the stock market. So that, the situation, I think, is a lot more complex than just a V-shaped recovery um, uh, from, uh, uh, you know, the sort of flash-in-the-pan COVID situation. It's, going to, it's a lot more serious than that, I believe. So, Alistair, you have said that uh, you would not rule out the fact that we see major fiat currency failures here in the very near future. Um, can, can you elaborate on that position? 
Yes, uh, certainly. The one thing that is absolutely clear is that the Fed and other central banks have tied the fate of their currencies to the fate of financial assets. Now, the last time this happened, happened in just one country, and that was in France in 1720, when an itinerant Scotsman called John Law managed to persuade the, the Prince Regent uh, to give him a banking license, and then to extend that license so that he became effectively the king's banker. So it was a prototype central bank called the Banque Royale. He used the money which he raised from that operation to puff up the shares of um, the Mississippi Venture, which basically was the name that we get, we 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 uh, uh, gave at the time to uh, um, his his uh, monopoly on all foreign trade for France, which we, he acquired off the king, and um, uh, the whole thing came to a climax in 1720, exactly 300 years ago, on the 28th of February. The he. The uh, Banque Royale, his, royal, his uh, central bank, was going to merge with the Mississippi uh, Company, with the Mississippi Venture. And uh, that was fine. That went ahead, I think, slightly later. It was, it was in early March that the whole thing was actually consummated. But the interesting thing is that while the shares in this joint venture peaked at around about 1,200 livre, livre was the currency that he was printing to puff up the market, um, uh, by September, they'd fallen to somewhere between one and 2,000 livres. But there was no exchange rate in London for the livre. In other words, on the foreign exchanges, the livre was worthless. So you can see that what happened was that when um, the failure of this puffing up of financial assets, in this case, it was one financial asset, uh, when that failed, it actually destroyed the currency as well. Now, we have a similar situation today, 300 years later, but it's not restricted to just one country. It is common to uh, a number of major com uh, countries, and particularly the Fed is absolutely committed to maintaining financial asset values uh, by printing however much currency it takes. Now, this is just John Law all over again. And... Uh, I mean, the reason I say that they're committed to doing that is the one thing that they cannot afford to do is to let the yield on government debt rise, because the moment that happens, the government is effectively bankrupt. So they must keep the rates down. And that's why there's been talk, so much talk about, um, uh, you know, controlling the yield curve, ensuring that the yields on, uh, uh, on the longer dated uh, government debt, such as 10-year and even perhaps even up to... 20, 20 years, maybe even further, that has got to be that has got to be suppressed to around about 0.6 percent. Now, 10 years is at the moment about 0.6 percent. They cannot afford to see that rise, given the amount of funding, um, the amount of funding that's got to got got to occur. The the uh, budget deficit in America is just running out of control, as I'm sure most of your listeners will be aware. Um, and that is eventually what we'll do for the dollar. And only this week, the dollar has weakened quite substantially, taking the lie out of uh, the idea that foreigners really do need dollars. They need No, they don't need dollars. They need dollar liquidity. And they've got enough dollars, and they've got too many dollars, and they're beginning to sell them. So where do you see the dollar going uh, relative to 
the, the major trading partners, the dollar index, as you indicated, when you look at the dollar index, which compares you know the purchasing power of the dollar to that of I think six of the the U.S.'s major trading partners, I think it's down about seven or eight percent uh, as of last week since uh, the first of April. Do you see that continuing, or do you see all fiat currencies kind of engaging in this race to the bottom? Well, uh, the, the answer is not very helpful, but both. Uh, in the, I think in the initial stages, the imbalances are all in the dollar. Foreigners have got far too many dollars. Um, if you look at the portfolio investments and other securities, including government debt, um, treasury bills, and cash held through correspondent banks in New York, the total amount of foreign money in the dollar is in the order of $27 trillion. Now, that is uh, significantly more than U.S. GDP. And that's 2019's GDP. It will be even more than uh, um, 2020's GDP. So <clears throat> that is where the, the, the main imbalance lies. Now, when you get a contraction of trade, what happens is that businesses and governments and so on and so forth need to raise money to support their domestic operations. So they will sell foreign currencies. And the foreign currency they've all got is the dollar. So the first stage of the dollar falling, I think, will be against other currencies. But then there is a second stage um, which comes with that, and that is that uh, as the dollar loses its purchasing power against other currencies, it also loses its purchasing power measured in uh, commodities, raw materials, and so on and so forth. You don't need to have a booming economy for prices of raw materials to go up. I mean, all that, all that uh, needs to happen is a situation where... Um, uh, you know, the, the, the ability to manufacture, the demand for raw materials, when they start falling, um, you know, you'll find that uh, the production of them starts falling as well. We've had so much disruption as a result of COVID that this is becoming a serious problem, particularly in the case of food and uh, other of life's essentials. Then you end up with another phase, and that is when the ordinary people in a country begin to realize what's happening. Uh, they realize that it's not the price of food going up, it's the dollar's purchasing power going down, their currency's purchasing power going down. When they understand that, then the currency is doomed. We are some way from that, but it could actually happen quite quickly, given the dynamics I was talking about earlier, and that is that the Fed has tied the future of the dollar to the future of financial assets. And Alistair, just a last question here. When you study history, when you study the uh, Weimar Germany hyperinflation, when you look at uh, you know the, the recent hyperinflation in Venezuela, it seems like when you when you start looking at how much gold those currencies buy, gold tracks that, and it seems like hyperinflations occur rather quickly. Is that a fair observation? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a two stage process. You can have many many years of a declining purchasing power, and then a final acceleration. Um, I mean, if you look at, you, you mentioned Germany, uh, um, the, the Kaiser, or rather Bismarck, uh, started arming Germany uh, from about 1910 onwards. And he did that, not, through, not paid by taxes, but he did it basically by inflating the currency. And it was a process that continued throughout World War I. And subsequently, when Germany lost, then uh, this policy became, if you like, more obvious. But even then, the mark, you know, even though it was losing uh, purchasing power quite rapidly, it didn't hit its real hyperinflation stage uh, 
until around about May 1923. By November 1923, it was all over. So, you know, you, you had that sort of long run into the situation, and then you had the real collapse. Today, uh, the run-in situation really uh, started, I suppose, with the ending of the Bretton Woods system in 1971 by President Nixon. And since then, uh, the loss of purchasing power of the dollar has been roughly 98% measured in gold. The final 2% will be the one which um, you know, could actually happen very, very quickly. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Mr. Alistair McLeod. He is the head of research at Gold Money. I would encourage you to check out his articles at goldmoney.com. You can click on the Research tab, and uh, you'll find his articles under the Gold Money Insights section. So I would encourage you to check it out. Alistair, uh, thank you for being so gracious with your time once again. Your uh, insights are always valuable. I know my listeners appreciate it, and uh, love to have you back down the road. That's very much my pleasure. Thank you for asking me, Dennis. We will return after these words. Stay with us. This is RLA Radio. I'm Dennis Tubergen, your host. Thanks again to Mr. Alistair McLeod for joining us today. Always appreciate his perspective. You know, in the conversation that I just had with Alistair, I asked him whether or not he believed a V-shaped economic recovery would be possible. In fact, a V-shaped recovery seems to indicate that we're going to get back economically speaking, to where we were relatively quickly. Now, Alistair seemed to think that that was an impossibility, and I happen to agree. And in this segment, I want to give you some evidence to point to uh, the fact that things are not going to be the same again for a very long time. And when it comes to doing your retirement planning and your retirement income planning, you can't do things the way you've always done them as well. Today on the program, as a special resource, if you'd like to get a copy of our new Retirement Rules book that really predicted and forecast where we are today, uh, you can go ahead and go to MyNewRetirementRulesBook.com. Uh, the book was published five years ago, but it's just as relevant today as it was then, perhaps even more so. And uh, the book will not only give you the forecast, but also give you some strategies to consider implementing in your situation. So the website, again, to get the book MyNewRetirementRulesBook.com. Now, one sign that things are changing is that year over year, according to CounterPoint Research, the sale of smartphones is down 25%. Consumers, it seems, are opting for lower-cost phones instead. New York Real Estate which is often considered to be the canary in the coal mine when it comes to real estate prices, declined in the second quarter of this year. According to Fox Business, New York City landlords began to discount rent over the second quarter in an effort to attract tenants. Rent prices, according to Fox Business, were discounted across 34, let's call it almost 35% of the properties in New York during the second quarter. The median asking price fell by 6.7% in New, in New York. That's about $2,600 a year, and that's all due to reduced demand. And when you look at other areas of consumer spending, and consumer spending is really important to take a look at because the U.S. economy is more than 70% dependent on consumer spending. 
The health of the U.S. economy is more than 70% reliant upon you and I going out and spending money. Well, if we go back to February, pre-COVID-19, and take a look at spending on transportation services then versus now, now being July, transportation services saw consumer spending at 20% of the February level. Spending on clubs, sports, and entertainment did come up a bit in July from June, but it's still at 40% of the levels seen in February. Hotels? Spending on hotels is about 60% of the level in June as to where they were in February. And spending on gambling and lotteries by consumers? 30% of February levels. And interestingly, spending on hospitals is flat. It's not increased. That's telling as well. Small businesses around the country continue to close. That is reflected in the unemployment rate. 52 million Americans have filed new claims for unemployment benefits over the past 18 weeks. And that's the biggest spike in unemployment in U.S. history by a very wide margin. In fact, this spike in unemployment dwarfs all previous spikes by so much that the other ones really aren't even worth mentioning. At the end of June, 19% of all small businesses were closed. By the end of July, that's 24.5%. Now think about that for a minute. Nearly one quarter of all small businesses in the entire country are closed. And the bad news is that many of them will never end up reopening. That's evidenced by what the website Yelp is reporting. Yelp says that a whopping 60% of the restaurants that were initially listed as temporarily closed on their site are now classified as permanently closed. Bars and clubs are being hit very hard also. According to Yelp, 44% of the bars and clubs on their site that were listed initially as temporarily closed have now been shut down on a permanent basis. Back to New York City, it's projected that one-third of all small businesses will never be able to open again. Now, if you think about these numbers... We didn't see numbers like this even during the Great Depression. It's it's very, very hard to believe, but it's actually happening. And there's a move now to get people to go back to work in Washington as the next stimulus package is being debated. But for millions and millions of Americans, and that's not an exaggeration, the jobs they once had are gone forever. So this damage that has been done will not be repaired quickly, if completely ever at all. So this whole idea of a V-shaped recovery appears to be more of a dream than it is a reality. Now, this changing world was forecast in the New Retirement Rules book five years ago. And on today's program, if you'd like to get a copy of that book, we would be glad to send you one absolutely free. Go to MyNewRetirementRulesBook.com and let us know where to mail your copy of the book, and we'll be glad to do that. The website again, MyNewRetirementRulesBook.com. 
Also, if you'd like to go back and listen to my interview with Mr. Alistair McLeod again, uh, the podcast version of this program will be posted at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That's retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. You can also, at that website, go ahead and sign up for our weekly Portfolio Watch newsletter, uh, where we update you on what's going on each week via email, uh, economically and financially speaking, and uh, keep you updated on uh, some things that you might consider doing with your money. So again, that website is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That's my program for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.